0: Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human podcast, where we are dedicated to having conversations that help create a better world with more freedom and less suffering. Today, my guest is Judge Jim Gray. He was the presiding judge of the Superior Court of Orange County, California. Straight out of college, he went into the Peace Corps to help teach kids in Costa Rica And in 2012, ran on the Libertarian Ticket with Gary Johnson as VP. We talk about how to end the war on drugs, the Libertarian case for universal basic income, and how competition can help fix health care and education. Whatever your political philosophy may be, please take a listen about how the principles of freedom can be applied to help improve the issues we all face. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. Thank you, Judge Gray, for being on the show today.
1: Brad, it's always good to talk with good people. Looking forward
0: to it. Oh, fantastic. Take your best shot. Okay, well, good deal. Well, I think this is going to be a friendly conversation, hopefully. You know, this is friendly turf. I think we agree on most things.
1: Let me stop you right there because most conversations should be friendly. As long as we have the same goals, we ought to be able to talk about different avenues and different uh, objectives. So it's really a shame that we don't have more polite discussion in our world today. And let's. Try to All of us try to change that because uh, we're, we're yelling and Skyping at each other. Well, I don't mean Skype, but uh, uh, chapping at each other, and we really should not be.
0: You're exactly right. That is a great point. Yeah, definitely. I think civility is something very important. Manners aren't taught anymore, and just the basic idea that you can see yourself in somebody else I think is very important. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, on the Chronically Human podcast, what we do is have conversations aimed at creating a better world with more freedom and less suffering. And so we had you on today because I've read your book, um, one you wrote a while back. It's Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It. I think it's the best book that's been written that I've read on not only identifying the problem, why prohibition can't work, but also giving solutions going forward when we live, are living in a post-we're-on-drugs uh, world. Why did you decide to write that?
1: Well, let me take you back a little bit. I was being drafted out of law school, so I ended up joining Navy JAG when I was at USC Law School during the height of the Vietnam War. And so I became a Navy JAG lawyer, criminal defense attorney in the Navy for about four years. And I started in Guam. And... uh, I would write charge sheets against my shipmates for a lot of offenses, including drug offenses, and then I would defend others in other commands, uh, usually for drug offenses as well. And I was basically a drug warrior, didn't think about it very much, just seemed like to equate heroin with bad, with evil, with prison was just a natural progression. So I went through, and then after I finished that tour, I was a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles, prosecuted various cases, bank robberies, and including drug cases. And in fact, for a brief while, I held the record for the largest drug prosecution in the Central District of California, 1977 or so, 45 kilos of heroin, uh, in fact, 55 kilos, about 165 pounds, was and is a whole lot of heroin. Do you have any concept of what the record prosecution is today? And it's 18 tons of cocaine in one place, so you can imagine the progress we're making here. But again, I went through and did it, and then I was on the bench for... Uh, beginning the 1983, and just looking around me, it was just so apparent that we were overloaded with drug cases. Uh, You could arrest, convict, and incarcerate a big-time drug dealer, and it didn't make any difference with regard to the supply of drugs. It'd just be an employment opportunity for somebody else. We were filling our jails with drug users, uh, non-violent drug users, mostly, and, and in many ways ruining their lives. And then I still remember, if you're ever going to have an epiphany, I think I had it when I was overseeing, as a municipal court judge, the sentence agreed upon by a superior court judge, which is the higher trial trial court level. Mm -hmm. And this was a man, the defendant, who was a pretty bad guy. And he would go with prostitutes, and he would rape them, he'd beat them up, and he'd rob them. And he did that four or five times, which is just heinous, just bad stuff. But the sentence he'd worked out, by the time he was done, uh... He was only going to serve about another 30 days in jail because of time served already, and he'd been there a few months. So we went through all of that, and he gave me the factual basis, which he has to do, and I gave him his rights, and he finally pleaded guilty. Then when he was being led back into lockup, he gave out this war whoop as if he'd won. And Brad, I still remember thinking to myself, you know, I think he has won. Because we're spending so many of our resources on the prosecution of nonviolent drug offenders, we don't have the resources left to prosecute the robbers, rapers, and murderers. And uh, so I started looking into it. And sure enough, I found out that in 1980, we were twice as successful in prosecuting homicides nationwide as we were in 1990. Why? Because the Reagan administration, again, revamped all of this war on drug stuff, taking valuable resources away from robbery, rape, and murder, and putting them into nonviolent drug offenses. So I did something, I think you will agree, rather unusual as a sitting trial court judge back in April of 1992, a long time ago now, and held a press conference. Judges don't do that but I told the world, anyone that would listen, our nation's drug policy is not working and we have to put our heads together to come up with a better solution. And, candidly, we couldn't do it worse if we tried. So anything we would try would be better than what we're doing now. Since that time, I've continued to be involved with this and, you know, as a libertarian candidate and just a spokesperson, I've been on the O'Reilly Factor twice and a couple of NBC, ABC specials. I've been really involved. And now when I talk to a Rotary Cub, I'll look them straight in the eye and say, drug prohibition is the worst policy in the history of the United States of America, second only to slavery. And then I go and prove it. And I'll ask people, you can ask your viewers. Uh, you tell me what's important to you, what's close to your heart, and I will show you to your satisfaction how it's made worse because of our nation's drug policy of drug prohibition. And it can be education, it can be health care, it can be overcrowding in jails, it can be the environment. Whatever you say, I will show you it is made worse because of drug policy. Terrorism, as you've seen in my book, uh, Drug prohibition is the golden goose of terrorism. Osama bin Laden on down, the Taliban, whomever, get most of their funding from the sale of drugs to fund these really evil types of things. And we are contributing to the delinquency of our kids because juvenile street gangs use the sale of drugs as a recruiting tool. Hey, you want to make some money? Come and sell drugs. You can join us and sell drugs. And it works. And a final nail in that coffin, and there's a lot of nails in it, If you're going to have an 18-year-old selling methamphetamine, marijuana, or whatever, who are they going to sell to? People like you and me? Not a chance. They're going to sell to their 16-, 17-, 18-year-old peers, thus recruiting more of our youngsters into a lifestyle of drug usage and drug selling. We're making progress, but my goodness, it's long and coming. It's about time.
0: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. Your book, I think it was written around in the late 90s, is that correct? It was
1: written in 2001, but it was updated to second edition in 2012. So uh, we'll have to get you with the second edition.
0: Okay, fantastic. I'm glad you brought up the war on terror because as I was reading your book, it really um, struck me that the war on drugs led directly into the war on terror, like you were just saying. And not only with the terrorist funding, but also with the destruction of civil liberties, especially with banking freedom, because I used to be a banker and Know Your Customer Act that, got tr- that um, you talked about how it, it was almost passed in the 90s, and then after 9-11, it got pushed through. Why do you think Americans are so okay with giving away their privacy now, and only 20 years ago, we would have fought tooth and nail about it?
1: As you've seen, I devote a whole chapter on the erosion of our civil liberties, citing only, basically, United States Supreme Court drug cases. And you can see how the needle is going down throughout this Why? Well, even judges are human. I'm sorry to mention this publicly, but but it's true. And they look around and they see these problems. And, well, yes, it used to be that a police officer searching someone who'd just been arrested could not go into the trunk of their car or open up a suitcase, particularly a locked suitcase. But, gee, they found a lot of drugs in that suitcase this time. Let's just just move it on a little bit, because... We, don't want, we want to help fight the war on drugs. And so again, I just cite all of these cases in which our civil liberties are being lost. Are we in any better shape because of that? No, but our civil liberties have been really, really attacked. Uh, as far as a connection between the war on drugs and terrorism, there is the money, like I said, but um, after 9-11, it shook us to our foundation. As I understand it, the so-called Patriot Act was already on the shelf. It had already been written, but didn't get any hearing in Congress until they used our fear generated by the war on terror, generated by 9-11, so they rode that into law. Uh, I was a lifelong Republican until the passage of the so-called Patriot Act, and that just did me in. This direct attack on our civil liberties was too much for me. I could not be a part of any organization that would condone, much less assist, this attack on our civil liberties. So I uh, left the Republican Party, and I still remember it took me about 13 seconds to decide that I'm a libertarian, and uh, I will be for the rest of my life.
0: Fantastic. What Now I only know probably two libertarian judges yourself and Judge Napolitano, what what are most judges, are they a reflection of American society, or are they more on the extremes with left and right? I
1: think probably all of them and you would be surprised to know how many libertarian judges we have, but not formally. Uh, I've had numbers of people that are really quite liberal when I'm talking about civil liberties and keeping the government. Government out of our bedrooms and that sort of thing. They'd look at me and say, "Well, gee, I'm a libertarian." I kind of drop my teeth because they're not financially responsible. But we—we we are. There are two things: financial responsibility, accountability is huge at all levels of society—individual, corporate, governmental—and uh, we're into that a great deal. But we're also into, let me put it this way: Thomas Jefferson—you've probably heard of that fellow—was yes. a libertarian, classic mm-hmm. libertarian, mm-hmm. and he said. <coughs> He said, I don't care if you worship one god, 20 gods, or no god. It doesn't pick my pocket, and it doesn't break my leg. Live and let live. You can live your life as you wish as an adult, as long as it doesn't wrongly affect my ability to do the same. That's called libertarians. And uh, I think that many, many judges are that way, but we are a minor party And the reason for that is because we have very good candidates. I I will reckon with you when I ran in 2012 for vice president with Governor Gary Johnson, uh, we were the most qualified pair to run over President Obama and Joe Biden on the one hand and Mitt Romney and and, uh, Paul Ryan on the other. You know, we weren't beholden to any special interests. Uh, We were going to have a coalition government. And yes, libertarians, but independents, Republicans, Democrats, as long as they agreed with our philosophy of financial responsibility and social acceptance, it would have been the country would be in an awful lot better shape had we won. We're not there, we're not seen as viable because we're not a part of the presidential debates. And we can talk about that if you want to, but it's Q, just clearly important. And The so-called Commission on Presidential Debates is completely controlled by Republicans and Democrats. There are five Republican commissioners, five Democrat commissioners, and we've gotten their documents and they literally say, we are a bipartisan group to get the Republican and Democratic views out to the community. You know, we're not nonpartisan, we're not tribe. They are there for Republicans and Democrats, and that's not the American way. And if we could just be a part of those presidential debates, it would bring those radical elements closer together because we would be the voice of moderation we would start getting traction and then people would start saying well gee you know maybe we ought to be more financially responsible maybe we should designate funding before we start saying that the government is gonna spend such and such money spend the money if you want but you have to show where the money's gonna come from first that's called libertarian that's called financial responsibility you do it I warrant as a banker or or as a private citizen you can't spend more money than you have at least Credit card debt will ruin you if you do. The government should be the same way. So that's libertarian. Help us be a part of the presidential debates in 2020, and you and the country will be glad you did.
0: Well, that's fantastic. It's a shame that the presidential um, debate commission that they they control it like that. It seems like there's one party in office instead of instead of two. Um, do you think as a strategy, this is going off a little off track here? of Libertarians um, infiltrating the Republican Party, or do you think building a Libertarian Party outside of the two-party system is the best approach?
1: The answer is yes to both questions. Okay. I, I don't care. Uh, if you want to be responsible and, and accepting in the Democratic Party, Republican Party, Green Party, whatever, fine. We would welcome you into the Libertarian Party, because I think you'd find a home. I think you would find things more un- more understandable, but the more the better. Either way, I don't care.
0: Definitely. And I think too, your book about the, the war on drugs, is that something that can reach across political lines? Because I think you can get to people, because it's about compassion, it's about fiscal responsibility, over a trillion dollars has been spent, millions and millions of people locked away, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people dead. And one thing that really struck me from your book is that the epidemic of HIV would not have happened if, if the war on drugs wasn't prosecuted the way it was because of the dirty needle sharing.
1: Well, I told you one experience, my epiphany, but I'll tell you another, which is just as strong. When I was on the municipal court bench, I still remember having two young men pleading guilty in my courtroom to being under the influence of methamphetamine. And that is a violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11.550 requiring a mandatory minimum sentence of 90 days in jail. They had no reason to lie to me because they'd already filled out their forms and they've done all this. I wasn't going to give them any more than 90 days. I couldn't give them any less. So, all of this by way of saying they had no reason to tell me something that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. But you have to take a factual basis as a judge before you can plead guilty. In other words, put into your own words why you're guilty of this offense, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, each one of those two at different times told me, Your Honor, my drug of choice was marijuana. And for years, I bought my marijuana from the same supplier, but one day, unbeknownst to me, he sold me some marijuana laced with methamphetamines. I smoked it a few times and got hooked. And I still remember sitting on the bench thinking, okay, we all know that smoking cigarettes is hazardous to your health, but at least if you go to your local mini-mart and buy a pack of Marlboros, you're gonna know it's not laced with methamphetamines. That's a drug prohibition problem. Quality control is a huge issue. And here, we're abandoning quality control to Mexican drug cartels, juvenile street gangs, the Hells Angels, and other thugs. And now now you're gonna get to your, your HIV stuff. In Switzerland, they have a program ongoing, it's been there since the late 1990s, called a heroin maintenance program. So if you are addicted to heroin, you go to a medical team, a medical clinic, and they will screen you and find out, first of all, as long as you're 22 years of age and have been through Regular drug rehab twice, and you're addicted to heroin, not hard to prove, and you will be crime free in the future, we'll put you on our program. What does that mean? It means I will give you a prescription for heroin, you can have it filled at pharmaceutical prices, and you can use it under medically controlled circumstances at the clinic. Okay? So what has happened? Problem drug usage has gone down in the country by 50%, because, you know, and crime has gone down as well, because if you're even arrested, you're off the program, Brad, and people realize, gee, I have to go back to the hustle. I've got to burglarize and I've got to get money and all this sort of stuff. And the drugs are dirt cheap. The only reason any of them is expensive is because they're illegal. So for a maximum of $10 a day, these even heavy-using, heroin-addicted people can satisfy their, their habits. And they can pretty much go back to work, live normal lives, and they have clean needles. Whoa, what did I say? You have clean needles under medical supervision, no one has overdosed, nobody has gotten AIDS, they're living pretty much normal lives. Why shouldn't we do that in every town and city in our country that has a need? And the only answer I get, are oh, children. Right. Okay, now wait a minute. You think any kid of any type is going to say, oh wow, I'm going to go get addicted to heroin so I can get on that program and use clean needles and, and, you know, and have my life run that way? Not a chance. It's simply demagoguery. Why do we keep doing this, Brad? And here, this is just me. I can't cite any any, many references, but you must understand. Why does the federal government care about medical marijuana? Why does the government care about hemp? You know, you can smoke your shirt there and get as much of a lift as you can by smoking hemp. I mean, there's just nothing there. Why do they care? And the answer is they realize that about 85% of everybody in the country that uses any form of illicit substance whatsoever uses only marijuana. Mm. So if we were to regulate and control marijuana, everyone else in the country using every other illegal substance combined would not justify this colossal bureaucracy. We have to fight the war on drugs. They don't want to lose the money. And you're talking staggering amounts of money for the police, you know, for... When I was writing my book, and I even put this in there, it was around the end of 1990s, and uh, McCaffrey was the, the uh, drug czar at the time. At the same time, United Airlines was buying U.S. Air, okay? United Airlines bought U.S. Air for something like $1.7 billion. McCaffrey had a budget of $5 billion that year, just in his office for drug con- national drug control policy for the drug czar. So he, with his own budget, could have bought three and a half airlines and had money left over. You're talking staggering amounts of money, they don't want to lose it. And that's not a good thing for us. But we as the people have to stand up and say, wait a minute, wouldn't it be better, for example, to take away a whole lot of money from Mexican drug cartels and again, our youth, our juvenile street gangs and other thugs and use it to pay our firefighters, pay our teachers and fix our highways. I mean, how hard can this be? Hold people accountable for their actions. That's the key. And you go back, you can tell I've, I've, I don't really care about this, I have no feelings whatsoever, but uh, Robert Downey Jr., and you know, he is still, he's making good movies, I'm proud of him, but he's pretty much had a lifelong heroin problem. But it makes as much sense to me to put Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. Of course, you know Betty Ford was President Gerald Ford's wife, and she was an acknowledged alcoholic. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's a medical issue bring people closer to medical professionals that can help them instead of rendering them automatic criminals and pushing them farther away. But if you, I, Robert Downey Jr., Betty Ford, drive a motor vehicle impaired by, you name it, methamphetamine, marijuana, alcohol, which is my drug of choice, even prescription drugs, that's a crime and should be. What's the difference? And the answer to that is, if you're gonna drive impaired, now you're putting our safety at risk, legitimate criminal justice issue. But if all you do is go home tonight and drink 10 martinis, which you and I can, because you're probably over 18 or 21, you know, it's not a crime, nor should it be. And if I'm drinking too much, that is something that you should bring medical professionals in. It's the same thing. And that's where we've gone astray. The criminal justice system, which I've worked in a great deal, is really designed for and really effective at protecting us from each other. Does a pretty good job. If I hit you in the mouth, you're going to be a victim and you're going to be a witness and all the rest of that. So it's good at that. Mm -hmm. It is not designed for and is terribly ineffective at trying to protect us from ourselves. It, It just doesn't work. And we're going into all kinds of difficulties trying to make that fit. It's not a police issue. It's a medical issue. So that would be a revolution that would cause enormous beneficial change in our country. United States of America has 25 percent of the excuse has five percent of the world's population and 25 percent of its prisoners. Mm-hmm. That does not we're number one does not make me happy at that, and I hope it doesn't you either unless you're a prison guards union that that's different. But there's got to be something wrong, and most of it is war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentencing, which is bringing just inhumane sentences against people. We have some prisons that are geriatric wards, you know, they Mm -hmm. couldn't hurt you, they couldn't even hit you with their walker if they wanted to, I mean, they just shouldn't be there. Now, I'm not saying Charles Manson or people like that shouldn't be there, Mm -hmm. but you know, there comes a time when if you're not a threat anymore, turn them loose, let them go back with their family and and let's get on with their lives and stop all of this incarceration, which is pretty expensive for the taxpayer, by the way. So there's many, many issues connected to the war on drugs, just like you were saying.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's about compassion. It's about taxpayer money. It's about um, respecting individual rights. When supply and demand is interfered with, you have these horrible unintended consequences. And I think that the war on drugs is a perfect example of why we need less government, less taxpayer money being used to protect ourselves from ourselves. And I'm, I personally have been ill for 30 years. I was, I was really sick as a young man and had t- over 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays. And so I've had uh, i been on pain pills for basically all my life. And so Mm -hmm. I've seen the DEA get involved with medicine and my doctors have gotten letters from them. Um, Recently I've been in pain management and I'm treated like I'm on parole. And so you have the criminal justice system now uh, becoming part of the medical system and you have to pee in a cup, you have to go every month. Now do you see, is there hope do you think for people to wake up? Because what I would like to do is is bridge the gap between the pain patients who are being forgotten the people who want to end the drug war I think that, that a lot of people are waking up to that what would you think are practical steps individuals could take to help to get the word out
1: our conversation here uh, should affect people and you thank you for what you're doing and I'm glad that you're, you're doing okay now I will tell you that as we sit here this minute there are tens of thousands of people just in California which is my home state that are in unnecessary pain why because like you say the DEA is hounding the doctors so much that the doctors are afraid for their own licensing to to prescribe enough pain medication to keep people out of pain now look if somebody is dying of AIDS or, or cancer or something as a terminal disease what difference does it make if they die addicted to some form of medication you know exactly. having people in unnecessary pain is is a sin it's, it's simply obscene so what do we do hold doctors accountable for what they do keep them within generally well-known guidelines of, of uh, uh, their profession uh, but otherwise get the DEA out of medicine another vivid example is and we tried to talk to the present Surgeon General under Donald Trump and didn't couldn't even get a, a meeting with him, but wouldn't it be better, smarter, more intelligent, to have the decision as to which drug is in which schedule on the Controlled Substances Act, have that decision made by a medical doctor instead of a police officer? Today those decisions as to whether marijuana is scheduled as a schedule 1, 2, 3, or whatever is made by the head of the DEA. That's insane. That is. But I couldn't even get a meeting with the Surgeon General to try to uh, get him to, to even take that position. Wow! Politics, politics is amazing. and I'm going to tell you, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Sowell, who is mm-hmm. S-O-W-E-L-L, Stanford University, an economist, bright, bright man. And among other great things he has said is that the first rule of economics is scarcity. That is to say that there's more demand for various items than there is a supply. So there'll always be a scarcity, and that means that the less supply is, the more the price goes up. Mm -hmm. We have to understand scarcity. That's the first rule of economics. The first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics, and and it's pretty close to true. You know, you're going to have all these politicians saying, I promise you free this, and I promise you free that, and I'm going to, you know, do all this sort of stuff. Wait a minute, you know, free Medicare for all? Right. Don't get me started, because it won't work anyway, but it's... If it would work, it'd still be trillions and trillions of dollars that we just don't have. So competition works. works in schools. It works in medicines uh, and responsibility as well. And if people need, if they can't afford their medicines, you know, we're compassionate people. I'll tell you, even in my, Brad, in my libertarian philosophy, and this sounds rather blunt and harsh, but it's true. If I were bleeding on the street right here and you were walking by, you would have no legal up obligation to help me whatsoever unless you cause my injuries that would be different but we will because we want to because we're compassionate I wouldn't be entitled to it just because I'm alive doesn't mean that you owe me anything but we will because we're compassionate people so bring our medical system our school system back to supply and demand for for uh, getting into competition Mm -hmm. competition works and then if you can't afford your medicines on a sliding scale we will give you a voucher to allow you to spend that on the private sector the prices will come down competition will go up if you want our medicine to be controlled by the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles that's where we're going right now mm-hmm. it isn't a good idea the least the people that are re, re, being reimbursed less and less are the medical professionals the ones that are making the money are the administrators so it's just a skew so we're getting fewer doctors, fewer competent doctors that will take Medi-Cal or whatever because the reimbursement isn't good. Get, get it out of there. I can afford my own health care. Get the government out of my health care. You probably can too. Most people watching here can. Maybe 20 25% cannot. So give them vouchers that they can spend on the private market for health insurance. If they need to, use for copays and otherwise let the free market do it. It will be a much, much better system. Same thing with schools.
0: Yeah, supply it, and demand works. It does, and people have forgotten that. You don't hear about laissez-faire capitalism more. You don't hear about, you know, the term free market has been demonized. Capitalism has been um, made to reflect the crony capitalist state that we currently have, instead of uh, the idea that individuals own themselves, and from that they own their labor, their property, and they're free to exchange. And so, I totally, totally agree with, it, with you on that. Now, in in the book well, Ian, about Ian the Rand, Ian Rand
1: made a mistake, and I've read her books and the rest of that, mm-hmm. and she's wonderful. But she coined the phrase, greed is good, right. which is just typically misunderstood. So we as libertarians have allowed other people to brand us as being greedy, survival of the fittest, you know, open borders, uh, I don't care, you know, I'll step on you, it doesn't matter. And it simply isn't true. Mm-hmm. We believe in something, like I said, responsibility. We believe in doing what works. And what works is competition. And greed, yes, if you act in your own economic self-interest, and and there's a wonderful essay called The I the Pencil, and it just talked about all of the different people didn't know each other, anything else, but they all conspired, as it were, acting in their own economic self-interest. Some people would manufacture the lead for the pencil, and others the the rubber for the erasers, and you put it all together. They all work together out of the profit motive. We got some really good pencils for really inexpensive prices. And that's true with regard to Chevrolets as well. Yeah, people yeah. don't understand that.
0: And with the, the I pencil, Leonard Reed with the Foundation for Economic now, Education, and he talked about that not one person knows how to make a pencil because there's so many people in the supply chain that have no idea who you are. They could care less who you are And they're going to do their small part because they have themselves to take care of and their family.
1: Okay, but Brad, to the degree that people do not understand that, that means you're not working hard enough. You have to get more of these podcasts out to more people, so get busy. Oh, I guess we are busy right now, aren't we?
0: Maybe we could start doing two at the same time. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll definitely, uh, this is definitely helpful. I think people, the hour-long conversation format, I like that because people get to see a little more in-depth about these subjects. And that it's not just a, um, a soundbite. Because all of these ideas are, are integral. They all work together because they're based upon principle. And I think that's the one discussion that we're not having anymore. It's the individualism versus collectivism. Does, does government have limits or it doesn't?
1: Well, let me, let me give you an, uh, a quick advertisement from your guest. Okay. I ran in 2004 as a libertarian for the United States Senate and uh, I knew I wasn't gonna win I I ran against Barbara Boxer who was the incumbent and a guy named Bill Jones who'd been a uh, a state uh, official and I just wanted to be a part of the discussion there never was a discussion because President George W. Bush kind of abandoned California and so there just nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So I was brimming with ideas, I wanted to discuss issues and it just didn't happen. So what I did instead is I came back to Orange County here in California and I started writing a weekly column in a local newspaper. And I would talk about different issues basically from a libertarian standpoint, and that gave rise to another book I wrote called A Voter's Handbook, Effective Solutions to America's Problems. So I finally got tired of of doing that. I wrote my book, and and, uh, it's available. So I started writing something called Two Paragraphs for Liberty, because I wanted to keep it short, and I wanted to contrast free market and Liberty on the one hand as opposed to government solutions on the other guess who usually came out ahead but uh, so I've been sending that out now every Monday by email for the last 204 weeks and so I cover all kinds of different grounds I even got into parenting I've gotten into a a great movie that I just saw this past week called the Green Book uh, which is a superb movie and it would never have been made without Liberty you know you'd never see Russia or Cuba or China or anything, allowing such a movie to be made, because it criticizes a lot of our people and our atmospheres or racism and stuff. But if any of your listeners would like to get regularly two paragraphs for liberty, have them contact me. I'll even give you my email address. They contact me, and I will put them on the list, which is Jim, as in James, P, as in Papa, Gray, G-R-A-Y, so it's Jim P Gray at sbcglobal.net. SBC, of course, is like Southern Bell Corporation, so it's Jim P. Gray at sbcglobal.net, and I'll send it out to you, just send me an email and I'll send it out, and uh, the idea is to spur a discussion. I don't have all the answers, I probably prove that every time, but it's good to talk about it, just give me feedback, send it to your friends, let's talk about these issues. And one of them was kind of what we were talking about before, one of the earlier ones, and this is on Snapchat and and, and uh Uh, WordPress and all that stuff too, it's at the bottom, but one of them was, look, if I am dying of a terminal disease, who the hell are you, government, to tell me that I cannot take an experimental drug? You know, okay, I understand it hasn't been approved yet, it may have side effects, advertise that, show me it hasn't been approved yet, maybe I'll get headaches, maybe all kinds of things, but why should I not, if I have a 2% chance of enhancing my life, why should I not be able to take that chance? Why the hell should the government tell me I can't do that? Or let me at least take it to a different direction, let my death mean something, at least Mm -hmm. let me show what doesn't work. That's my choice, that's a choice of liberty, not the government. That's just kind of some of these approaches, that the government has just gone crazy. The Coastal Commission, I'm going to change subject subject direct, directly here, but the yeah, California Coastal Commission, if you're going to build anything within five miles of the coast, you have to go through the Coastal Commission to get permission and all the rest of that stuff. Okay, I believe in the environment, and I don't want to have a McDonald's, you know, on, on uh, Bismo Beach or whatever on the, on the sand, but but the Coastal Commission... Talk about overdoing their authority. They went to SeaWorld down in San Diego, and they decried that SeaWorld could no longer use orcas, killer whales, in their exhibits. Now, maybe you can agree with that, maybe you can't, but how the hell can the Coastal Commission make that decision? But they somehow were able to—they're not elected officials. You know, it's just government bureaucracy has taken over, and it's time for we the people to bring it back. There are many, many examples of that. We can talk about war if you want to, but lots of examples.
0: Sure, definitely. I I, I agree about that, that we've allowed it to happen to a certain degree, that we've been complacent, and the interested and the lobbyists and those type of people have gotten involved in the process, and a lot of closed-door meetings are going on that has to do with our money and our freedom that we don't have access to. But but I recently went and spoke in front of the Georgia legislature on the uh, Kratom Study Committee, I take Kratom as well. And uh, the legislators at the state level, I think, are very receptive. And I think that's another reason why uh, I really liked your book, because you talked about ending the war on drugs on the federal level, if I read that correctly, and then having drugs uh, follow the alcohol model in distribution and taxation. Do you still think that's the most pragmatic and still, still believe that's the way to go?
1: Yes, I think it's a question of federalism, which means allow each state to decide how best to preserve and protect its people, and it may be that Oklahoma would have a better system uh, that wouldn't work in Ohio, so mm-hmm. why should... When I talk about this issue, Brad, I ask the question, how many people feel that the federal government has all the answers, <laughs> and never get any hands raised, you know, of course not, so why should they dictate to Nebraska or Indiana or Texas about how they're going to treat marijuana? Let them reduce, just like with alcohol prohibition, when it was abolished, mm-hmm. it did not say that every state had to serve alcohol. All they did was say, the federal government's no longer involved. They will only help the states enforce the state's chosen rules. So if Nevada is dry, in fact, I was in Peace Corps training in San Marcos, Texas, which is kind of between Austin and uh, and uh, uh, San Antonio, but uh, it was a dry county. Okay, if they want to do that, they've switched since, but they want to do that, fine. So if the whole state is dry and somebody smuggles some alcohol into that dry state in violation of its laws, that can be a federal offense. That's fine. But allow each state to do it. We have these 50 crucibles of democracy that are going to figure out what's going on. So under that circumstance, somebody in Illinois, they pass a particular law about marijuana, whatever. People in Indiana pass a different law. Then you look around after a couple of years, a couple of months, and say, well, I don't know. What do you think, George? Uh, It was a good idea at the time, but. It isn't really working very well here in Indiana, but, oh, wait, look what they're doing in Illinois. Let's try that. We learn from each other, and that is where we should go. That's the concept of federalism. By the way, our country was founded on the concept of federalism, and uh, the Tenth Amendment says unless a power is expressly delegated by this Constitution to the federal government, it's reserved for who? The The states and the people. And the federal government has usurped so much power in that since that time. It's time to bring it back because it works better. It I isn't mean, just philosophical. I, I'm I'm a pragmatist. I, I believe in what's practical. Mm-hmm. Let's go with what works. And the federal government's off the tracks.
0: Definitely. I'm I'm I think I'm more on the uh, the radical individualist side of things or the anarcho-capitalist side, Um, but I understand, but I've, the older I get, the more I understand that you have to, um, I think you have to engage with the system in order to change it. I really do. And I think that uh, there's a a large part of the libertarian community who doesn't believe that, that, uh, you know, they they think that somehow that's going to, that's not intellectually or philosophically pure to do that.
1: I'm not philosophically pure. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that in California they now require restaurants with more than, I don't know, 20 outlets or something to have to put the calorie count on their menus. I applaud that. I think that it's a function of government to get accurate information out into the marketplace. Uh, England, by the way, you know, of course they have a, a socialistic government or healthcare system there. People in England are now talking, hey, wait a minute, you know, obesity is dangerous for people, for their health, not because we care about the people, but it's costing government money. Right. So the government is now stepping in and saying, you know, I don't think that you can have any pizza because that has too many calories and you're contributing to your own obesity. So in order to have the, keep the for government from spending so much money, they're going to start telling us what we can eat, you know, oh, you can't have a Coke, you can only have a diet Coke. Do you want the government to get involved in that? Imagine, Definitely. by the way, that... The, the, the attempts at trying to enforce something like that, the expense and the probing into it, get the government out of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree I with tell that. My kids, tell
1: my kids all the time when I talk to young people about the war on drugs, look, you know, I do not condone smoking marijuana, particularly unless at least you're 25 years old, because right. your body is developing. Right. Yeah. It's going to cause you harm. Right. But I don't care if it's legal or illegal. Your body won't forget you treat your body poorly, and it's going to treat you poorly. So it will respond to what you do to it. I don't even eat uh, you know, candy anymore because of the calories. You know, I just, my, I'm just having trouble with my cholesterol. What am I going to smoke marijuana for? But uh, it's, it's an individual matter, and individual responsibility is key, not government.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you talk about food. It's funny you say that. I've been following a lot of people who are on the carnivore diet lately. And uh, they they keep up with the vegans and the vegetarians and and that crowd, which I have no problem with people choosing what to eat. I think that's part of the the founding of America is that the religious freedom had a lot to do with uh, eating what you wanted to. And
1: they um, I, myself, I myself mostly were on a seafood diet. That okay. is, if I see food, I eat it. Okay,
0: that's <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. And they, the carnivore people, they they're really hypersensitive to. Um, to the, uh, the stuff out there from like The Lancet, you know, that, that journal out there that they have their guidelines for eating. And the people in public policy, I think, are some of the most dangerous people in the world because all their job is to, um, to devise ways to take more of our money and more of our freedom. And one of the ways they're doing that is to take away, um, to tax meat. And, and you were talking about that. And they were saying that there's gonna be a black market in meat one day because of the laws, the way that they're trending.
1: Yeah, and the meat's going to be black, too, yeah. but uh, yes, you know, of course. Uh, you know, it's just, it is a question of responsibility. You get the government out of trying to protect us from ourselves and just have us protect us from each other. And uh, and hooray for that. And I got to tell you, you know, it, it concerns me uh, if you're having animals, the chickens, for example, they can't even flap their wings. You know, mm-hmm. after a while, that gets inhumane. And it, it causes me trouble. I think that should be publicized. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, you're going to advertise you have free-range chickens. I'm much more likely to buy them uh, mm-hmm. instead of and the hormones and the rest. The market will adjust mm-hmm. if, if you just simply put those, those facts on there. People, are, people are, care about the environment. They care about animals. They care about the, the save the whales. But the government just is not the right organization to do it much of the time.
0: Definitely. And I think people forget that government has the monopoly of force in society and that everything the government does is backed up with a gun. And if you continue to resist, if it's even like a parking ticket, that can end up with you in jail, seeing somebody like you, you know, in court, or they can actually kill you if you resist. So all of these small laws, and I think there's like 400,000 laws and regulations, I think, on the federal level or something crazy that, uh, that can lead to something terrible like that happening.
1: Brad, I'm sorry to tell you uh, that you have probably violated at least 10 laws today. You may not have known it, but there are all kinds of laws out there that, uh, you know, particularly if you drive a car or you even sometimes even thinking might cause a violation of law. But uh, I think I'll give you a pass. You're not under arrest, but
0: it was close. I got you. I got you. That's good. Well, um, as far as your time as a judge, you said that you were um, in the Peace Corps and people don't do that anymore it seems like that used to be like a, a big thing or is it still is it still something that people are into
1: yes it is it's quite viable it's doing quite well it's changed i was i began in 1966 and it only began in 1963 oh, okay. so most of the volunteers were people like me you know, ones that had just graduated from college, we didn't have any particular skills, although I requested the smallest town in Costa Rica that had a high school, and they gave it to me, so I taught physical education, recreation, and health. I think I should be in the Guinness Book of Records, actually, for having brushed my teeth in front of more elementary school classes than anyone in history, but Guinness hasn't stooped that low to to do that, but, uh, you know, that Now, you get older people. You get people that are retired mechanics, or you get people that have been teachers, or you get people that actually have a skill, terribly frowned upon when I was there to be married. Well, that's kind of dumb. You know, I was 21 years old, unmarried, and down in Costa Rica, at least by the time you're 18, you're pretty much married. And they looked at me like I was kind of strange, uh, much less some of the girls in our, Group that was even worse, Hmm. but now you get a lot more married people, sometimes with children, sometimes older, who actually have skills, and those are more Peace Corps volunteers, and it's thriving. It's doing real well. I'm glad to tell you.
0: Oh well, that's good. That's something uh, that I it it seemed like that would be that was publicized when I was younger a lot more. Um, Is that that's a totally private organization, or is there government funding? It's totally
1: public, totally public. It's run by the government.
0: Oh, it is. Okay, I got you. I got you. Well. As far as when you were a judge, did being in the Peace Corps, did that influence you at all when you were making decisions about seeing kind of maybe the other side of, not how other people live, but uh, giving you a deeper perspective of life?
1: It gave me a perspective. I think I learned more from the Ticos, we call people in Costa Rica, than they learned from me. I'm going to tell you, I've written another book too. I'm getting all my books in here. It's called Wearing the Robe, the Art and Responsibility of of Judging in Today's Courts. It's the only how-to book for judges I'm aware of. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is that the first sentence in the introduction was, the best decision I ever made in my life was choosing my parents. Hmm. And uh, of course, I had nothing to do with that, but I was very lucky to be able to have two supportive, intelligent, caring, interesting parents. And they kept enforced rules and the rest of that. Through no fault of mine, I could have been married to a single mother with AIDS in Nigeria. You know, it, it wasn't my choice. But I think that's given me a moral obligation to help those who did not choose quite so well. Hmm. So, yes, the Peace Corps affected me as a judge. I learned to speak Spanish. I, could, In fact, I'd sometimes in small claims court cases with Spanish-speaking litigants, I'd ask them if they wanted to do this in Spanish instead, and their eyes get really big, like, what's this gringo doing speaking Spanish? But anything you can do, broadening I strongly encourage traveling reading books um, seeing how other people live you know it's amazing that not everywhere in the world is like Irvine I would tell people here you know it's basically a controlled, constructed community some people live out you know and even have dirt streets and and uh, they're really pretty happy okay that's good uh, I hope that they're drinking clean water you know and we can help with that but but people are people all over the world We have a program now calling Project Understanding that is talking about all of the commonalities that so many of the world's religions and philosophies have. We all see the the differences, and there are certainly some in different interpretations, but they all have the same commonalities. And so we're trying to get across to people uh, all of those various things. We have authors that are really knowledgeable, writing essays about all these commonalities. It's fascinating to see. By the way, if you want to get a... A link to that I can't remember it off the top of my head, but contact me on my email again, Jim P Gray at spcglobal.net. I'll send you our link and you can read that and, and pass it on. There's a lot of good things happening in this world, Brad, and we should focus on those a lot more than we are.
0: I I totally agree with that. I think having conversations like this, and I think that people, there is really an awakening. I know people say that a lot, that you're woke or, you know, people talk about that, but there's an awakening that, that people are people around the world and that there is a basic understanding that life is suffering, it's hard and difficult. And I think everybody, well, not everybody, but most people can agree that there are serious problems out there, but at the same time, there are solutions. Um, I think voluntary transactions. I think uh, peaceful trading. I think you know respecting individual rights is the is the basis for charity. The basis for churches getting involved um, instead of having this enormous welfare system.
1: Welfare is a trap. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say. Uh, my daughter, she's allowed me to say this. She is 42 years old. She's bipolar, and she is on Social Security, mm-hmm. and. She has trouble holding a job, but she could, and I found her a job one time, but she found out that if she works more than 10 hours a week, she will lose more benefits than she'll make. So she has an incentive not to work. That's stupid. But that's our welfare system. That's our social security system. That's the bureaucracy. If you have a minute, do you? I'll I'll tell you how we can address homelessness in our Mm -hmm. country. You need an institutional change. This is Milton Friedman, by the way, so I'm on safe ground. Let's, just for using these numbers, just for illustration, I would say that no one in our country that makes, for their first $30,000 of income, will pay any taxes to the federal government at all. Mm-hmm. Then for every dollar they make between $30,000 and $100,000, they'll pay $0.10 cents to the federal government. I don't care how they spend their money. For every dollar between $101,000 and $500,000, they'll pay $0.18 cents to the government, and if you're Kobe Bryant or or Fon Curry or make more than $500,000 a year, each of those dollars you'll pay 23 cents to the government. End of discussion. Now, what about if you make no money whatsoever? And honestly, I don't care, as long as you're here as a citizen or green card, you know, you're here that way. If I don't care if you lost your job to a robot, or you want to go back to school, or you're just plain lazy. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I will give you a federal government check for $15,000 a year, probably broken into 12 payments. You no know, monthly payments of twelve hundred and fifty dollars now for every dollar you earn between zero and thirty thousand dollars you will lose fifty cents of your stipend so you'll always have an incentive to earn the extra money Are you with me mm-hmm. incentives are good so the cutoff point is thirty thousand dollars you pay no taxes and you get no stipend now what about the homeless now wait a minute. If a homeless person were to have the equivalent of an ATM account with $1,250 in it each month, the private sector would quickly work out some form of fairly inexpensive room and board situation for maybe $1,000 a month. They could do that. They would. And then this person would still have another $250 for various other necessities. And so, yes, they would have the money, but the private sector would be able to respond and institutionalize the problem. Now, if somebody has mental illness or they're drug addicted, that's a different issue. Then maybe they need a conservatorship. But Milton Friedman said, you know, the difference between the poor and the wealthy is the poor don't have any money, so give them some. <laughs> and then get all of this other welfare out of this, all the bureaucracy, all the unfairness, all the gamesmanship. Nuts to that. You don't, you don't need to do that. It's a brilliant idea. And because we're compassionate, I don't owe you this. You know, fifteen thousand dollars, but I will because I want to have you have lend a hand so that you can get up from the basement. You can start working, and if you can't, if you really can't, or don't want to. At least, I don't want anyone in my country to starve or not have some place to sleep.
0: I guess so. You. That's my answer, and that's the the idea of uh, the. Was it the basic income that that, that yes. people would get?
1: Uh, it's a variance of that, yes.
0: and the, But you can imagine. There are three groups
1: of people that do not like this idea, and the first is, of course, the tax accountants, the tax attorneys, H&R Block would not like this idea, and I can live with that. The second group are basically the people, you know, in the IRS and the enforcement and all that sort of stuff, uh, they'd be out of work, so, so that wouldn't bother me either. But, I, but you know the third group is really, really powerful and adamantly against this, and that is members of Congress. Why? Because today, members of Congress get enormous political benefits by voting for tax breaks for their wealthy constituents, and then that reverberates that they get campaign contributions and other support for their reelection. They don't want to give it up. So if Gary Johnson and I had won the presidency and vice-presidency, we would have put this to the people. Not, I don't think we'd be tweeting, by the way, but we would let the people know, go over the heads of Congress and say, if your member of Congress doesn't vote for that, he or she is putting their interests ahead of yours, you better talk to them. Because this would work, and it would help us no end.
0: And that would help eliminate a large amount of the bureaucracy, because there's a lot of redundancy, there's a lot of different programs it's- that are doing the same thing, and then people have to navigate this this Byzantine bureaucracy, sure. which punishes people, I think, who, who don't have, like, help to navigate it.
1: That's right. Not only, it's not only redundant, it's repetitively redundant.
0: And also, it would help, too, I think there's a, a huge issue, and, and I might even advocate for maybe pushing that to the state level um, instead of the federal, but I understand where you're coming from on that. And That it, works. The, That'll work. Yeah, and definitely that...
1: Yeah. I, I don't think the states would have enough money to carry it off, Mm -hmm. but uh, I want to simplify our tax system. And under this system, by the way, if you're going to increase taxes, it's not hidden. You know, if you're going to increase it from 10 cents to 11 cents for that, you know, between 30 and 100,000, we'll know it. We can see. By the way, if you're going to reduce taxes, we'll know that, too. And you have all of this. You talked about crony capitalism before, which is rampant. Mm -hmm. Oh, they would not like a libertarian solution. You know, we have all of these tax breaks and all of these these bonuses and all the rest of this. We pay people something. Last year, it was something like $7 billion not to raise corn. Now, wait a minute. I can not raise corn with the best of them. Pay me money, too. But, you know, under a libertarian solution, that simply would not be there, nor should it be. Right. Get the government out of the marketplace. I'll tell you what, this is, this is radical, but Mao Zedong when he was, you know, in there in the Red, Red uh, Revolution and the rest, he was saying, oh, the government's going to control the wheat growing because, you know, you're right now it's kind of measly. We're going to plant the, the wheat seeds four feet underground and we're going to have trees of wheat they are going to furnish wheat for everybody. Wheat is going to be so plentiful it'll be free. Well, you're going to have to work real hard for a while to get there. But that didn't work. You know, the wheat didn't, didn't survive and millions of people died from famine. Mm-hmm. So then he came back and said, well, the problem was you have all these sparrows out there, that the sparrows are eating the wheat seed, and then they're eating the, the crop when it comes up you. We're going to declare war on sparrows, which they did, and they had the biggest infestation of insects like you wouldn't believe, and more you know, millions of people died. It's just a radical, extreme example of government interference in the marketplace, and it, as shown by, by almost all of that. You just can't do it. You go to the Soviet Union. I'll tell you a story. A true story was told by the chief uh, uh, chief judge of our court of appeal here in uh, in uh, California, in, in Orange County, and he had just gone to Moscow, and he had stayed in the best hotel in Moscow, and he said, in Moscow, everybody has a job. You know, unemployment is not a problem. And one man had the obligation, the job in his big hotel every morning to plug in the vacuum cleaner, switch it on, and vacuum the rug. Okay. The problem is that this vacuum cleaner had broken long ago and they didn't have any spare parts. Nonetheless, he would plug it into an outlet, turn it on, and, and vacuum the rug with something that wasn't working. And he said, you know, there's no way that an economy like this can survive. Mm-hmm. It's true. Right. These are the things that just we gotta Understand, we will enforce contracts. That's what the government does with the judicial system. Enforce warranties, enforce responsibility. I'm not saying anything goes, but bring the private sector into this, like in medicine or or education or whatever else, and it'll work. So in education, if you can't teach, today you're protected by unions. It's very, very difficult to hire anybody, even for malfeasance, because the unions have all of these things. The city of New York... I read this about six months ago It's the epitome of foolishness they had I can't remember how many 1500 teachers high school teachers that they actually had go to a gymnasium every day and play cards or read books or whatever they would pay them not to teach because they made the decision that it was more harmful to have them in the classroom than out of the classroom they couldn't fire them but so they just pay them for not teaching
0: wow. in a
1: private sector that simply never would happen so if you have competition allow the, cho- the parents to choose where their government money is going to be spent for the education of their children. Just like in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they've had school choice for a long time, they will choose excellence. And if Milwaukee an example, they will receive it. Mm-hmm. So I was running for pre- vice president in 2012, candidly, I was kind of embarrassing, I forgot where I was and I was explaining school choice in Milwaukee. Everybody was going, no, Judge Gray, wait a minute, we don't have any bad schools here anymore. They're all gone, they've been replaced, or they got better, because we have school choice. We've had it for 10 years. Now it's in Indiana, it's in Florida, it's in New Orleans. It's, answer, it's working. Unions don't like it, but the good teachers love it. Because if, if they're a good teacher, they'll be in demand and they'll be paid accordingly. And the bad teachers, if they can't teach, will be out of work, to which everybody in our country should say, good.
0: <laughs> they, Competition they works. They should find something else to, to, to do.
1: Brad, what are you doing talking with me? You're supposed to spread this word and get this out there.
0: Exactly, exactly, Judge Gray. Well, uh, we're about out of time here, but I wanted to touch on something really quick that I read in your book um, about civil asset forfeiture. I think there's been some strides being taken place about that getting better, um, but it seems like that that's lost momentum a little bit, just like cannabis legalization. What do you think about civil asset forfeiture as a judge and when you were sitting on the bench, and what do you think of it now?
1: Well, it's not getting better. It's getting less worse, first of all. Uh, to have any government be able to forfeit your property without a conviction accompanying it is an atrocity. Mm-hmm. And the the synthetic approach to this is, oh, so you know, you have a you just uh, sold some uh, a car and you have some money in your in your pocket and you want to go off and and buy something with it later on or whatever, uh, and they stop you for having a possession of an ounce of marijuana, and they can say, oh, you must have been selling marijuana, you got this money from the sale of marijuana, we're going to impound it. And the answer is no. It used to be, and in my book when it was in 2001, it was worse. They had no accounting it for anything and the rest, but it's, it's getting less worse now. That, uh, But you should have to have a criminal conviction Authorities can keep it if they want to, if they indict you, but once, and once you're convicted, then you submit it to the same jury that convicted you, say, well, you know, did he use this airplane to smuggle drugs in? And if the jury says yes, then forfeit the airplane. But it's got to be connected. And there was recently, and you say it's less worse, uh, a Supreme Court case from the United States where some guy was charged with selling $300 of methamphetamine. So they impounded his whole Land Rover, which is worth about thirty-five, forty thousand dollars 40000 And they finally came out and said, you know, in the Third Amendment, that is fine is disproportionate to the offense. So they turned it around. So we're, we're making progress. The answer is only with a conviction can you seize any of these things. And if you do, bless you. That's fine. And I th- as long as it says so.
0: And I think, too, Judge Gray, that, that goes across... Um political lines as well, left, right, it libertarian, it should, right, as well as the war on drugs. It
1: doesn't. Yeah. it doesn't, because a lot of cities, states, and, and countries make a lot of money at this stuff. And uh, money is, government is money, Brad, government is money. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but, uh, you know, and as Milton Friedman says, you know, why do you think that these angels of government are going to do something better than you can, you know, making your own decisions? That government is money, it's bureaucracy, it's building fiefdoms, it's having power, and we need to keep it in check. I've written a new musical, it's called Convention, the Birth of America, and I'm trying to shop it now. It's on the Constitutional Convention, and I'm proud of it. So I'm really in touch with the founders, and I don't say founding fathers, because there are a lot of women too, Abigail Adams and others, but to a person to a delegate each delegate there they disagreed about many things but eat to each one the most important function of government to each of those delegates was to protect our liberties from the encroachment of government number two was security was was freedom. it was safety i mean but number one was that so we need to get back to that we need to keep government under control and they did delegate powers to the to the federal government sure you know the and they're in there, Article One, Section 8, and look at them, and they're just brilliant. Declaration of War, too, we didn't talk about, but, but we've got to get back from that. Thomas Jefferson, you've heard of him also, I know, because I mentioned him before, said, we must have a bloody revolution every generation. Why? Because otherwise the vested interests will take control. Now, Thomas Jefferson, he, he wasn't at the Constitutional Convention, but had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. But Our Constitution makes it not have to be a bloody revolution. But how long has it been since we've had a revolution, basically the 1860s when the Republicans took over from the Whigs, and look at the special interest power that has generated ever since. It's time for another one. It can be peaceful. Libertarians are standing ready and able. We will put in a coalition government. We will have much, much better things for, for everybody except for the bureaucrats.
0: Well, that's, that's a great way to put that, Judge Gray, and that's a, a great place to end, I think. It was a, a great conversation. I learned a lot. I think my audience will as well. Um, where can people find what you're doing currently besides your email? I'm going to list that as well as your books in the show notes. Thank you. Is there any you know,
1: notes? I have judgejimgray.com. Uh, you can go to WordPress and that sort of thing, uh, but you, you – I'm, I'm at the old school, you know, I, I tell people my techie experience, I'm almost ready for the Y2K problem, not quite, but I think I'm almost there, so uh, email is probably the way to go, and I'll leave you with a final thought then, Brad, if you want, and that is, no matter how hard you push the envelope, it's still stationary.
0: Okay, I gotcha. Well, that's a great way to end it, but I urge all my audience to go out and purchase a copy of Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, get the 2012 updated edition and give that away by four or five or 10 and give it away to friends and family because like i said it, it it beautifully identifies the problem and then offers solutions so i want to thank judge gray for being here i appreciate your time
1: good luck to us all nice to talk with you
0: brad well thank you very much and thank you everybody for joining us and we will see you next time